Um, the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and Pastor Walker has a message for us this morning covering the apostles' teaching. So, Pastor Walker, come and share what the Lord has given you. Amen. Good to see your beautiful, smiling faces. You've already been told you're beautiful today, but you deserve to be told again. Um, Okay, what's, what, give me a moment here while I set up. There was a song that I was singing last night and woke up singing this morning um, that many of you will know. Um, it's an old-time hymn, and I'm not going to sing it. But down at the cross where my Savior died, down where uh, the cleansing from sin I cried, uh, I can't sing, I can't know the words without singing it. There to my heart was the blood applied. Okay, anyways, but I was singing that song because all week long I have been thinking of the cross. Because we've been going through the apostles' teaching here at the River Church because in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it, it recounts what the apostles did in their time around Pentecost. And if, if any of you are new here, you, will know that, or you won't know, but I'm about to tell you that this is a Pentecostal church, meaning that we believe what happened on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, is vital to the Christian life, absolutely vital to the Christian life. And so here at the River Church, we, we want to know more about the day of Pentecost and what happened in the events surrounding that. And so we've been talking about the apostles' teaching. Well, first off, I think it's, it's worth a note to, to note what the word apostle even means because some, some people who've maybe not grown up in church don't know what that means. An apostle was just simply one who walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, talked with Jesus, sat under the teaching of Jesus. That's an apostle. Um, so, you know, sometimes in, in some church denominations today, people will call themselves an apostle, but they're not a true apostle. A true apostle ended with uh, the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul was, was the last one. Well, if you want to talk about the life John was the last one living, but John, or Paul was the last one to see Jesus. So, apostles are ones who simply saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. We want to know here at the River Church, what did they believe? How did they interpret the Scripture? What did they teach about the Lord? That's what we want. That's what I want. Because in Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You cannot talk about the apostles' teaching without talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You can't talk about what the apostles taught without talking about the cross because the cross is absolutely central to the teaching of the apostles. Furthermore, the cross is absolutely central to all of Christian teaching. The cross is the climax of the gospel. The cross is the gospel itself. The cross is the moment all of heaven was waiting for. The cross is everything. I have so many uh, things I want to get into today. I don't, I don't want to uh, berate this any, any further, but the cross is absolutely essential. And I want to make a quick note before I get into the actual sermon. When I say cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, okay, I do want to make this very clear because there are people maybe here who aren't churched Jesus Christ lived and walked in this lived and walked on this earth. 
And around the year 33 AD, the powers that be, the Judean high council and the Roman officials, put him, uh, wrongfully convicted him to death. They did not like the way that he treated people. They did, they, Jesus broke a lot of their rules. Je, Jesus did not live in a way that they wanted him to live. All right, Jesus was bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus was walking around healing people, doing things that the, the, the powers that be did not like. And because of that, they hung him on a tree. Acts 10.36. And they hung him on a tree. And that's what happened. I'm not going to take you through the whole thing, but if you want to do some, a little um, you know, side visual effects go watch the passion of the christ i think it's a very good depiction of what actually happened to jesus and we in in a lot of christian culture we want to skip to easter sunday without going through good friday we want to talk all about resurrection and victory and triumph without actually what about talking about what actually happened to the son of god he was brutally whipped and murdered beaten I mean, scientifically, if you look at it, Jesus didn't die of lack of blood. He, he died because the ligaments in his shoulders gave out and he died of suffocation because his lungs couldn't properly breathe. Choked on his own blood. Horrific stuff. Welcome to church, <laughs> right? Horrific stuff. But it's in this terrible, terrible atrocity. It is in the, the worst crime humanity has ever committed, deicide. We killed God incarnate. When God came in the flesh, we killed him. The greatest crime ever committed is your salvation, is my salvation. This horrible, horrible, horrific incident is somehow paradoxically beautiful and wonderful. And that cross is a symbol of hope everywhere in the world. There's a uh, I see Weber has a shirt on with a cross on. You walked in with a, ha- a hat on with a cross on. The cross is a symbol of hope because this horrific event is our salvation. I want to talk about that today. I want to go, I want to go deep. I want to go in depth. So put on your thinking caps, put on your britches, and, and we're going to get going. The Apostle Paul, right? We're talking about the Apostle's teaching. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, verses 1 and 2, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Apostle Paul, for those of you that know your Bible, will know that he is the one who said that if Jesus Christ was not resurrected from the dead, then everything is in vain. It's all for nothing. We shouldn't be gathering here at all if Jesus wasn't resurrected. So the Apostle Paul was certainly a man of the resurrection. If it wasn't for the resurrection, Jesus never would have met the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. So the Apostle Paul is all about the resurrection, but he's got one sermon to go preach in the church of Corinth, and he says, I didn't come to you with lofty words of wisdom and excellent speech and all this good fancy talk and stuff. He said, no, the only sermon I want to preach is about Christ and him crucified. Because the Apostle Paul knew deep truth, and that is this, that there is just as much power in the crucifixion of Jesus as there was in the resurrection of Jesus. There's just as much power in Jesus dying on the cross as there was in the resurrection The cross is our salvation. The Apostle Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul knew this. 
I want to give you a couple of, um, I don't know if you want to say poetic, a couple of thing, uh, nine things I wrote down that the cross is. Okay, the cross is. So listen, listen up to, the, to these things. The cross is the climax of Jesus' life, where the ugliness of human sin and the beauty of God's grace and love collide. The cross is the place where Jesus declares independence from the kingdom of darkness for all of God's people. The cross is the final word of forgiveness that God speaks over humanity. The cross is the place where Jesus destroys death by entering straight into it. You could say it like this. The cross is the death of death. The cross is the focal point of history in which God makes a deal with God to bear our sin, shame, and guilt, and he forgives it. The cross is the place where Jesus identifies himself with all those wrongfully murdered, persecuted, executed, and convicted. The cross is the place where Jesus drives out Satan and takes his rightful place as king. The cross is the place where Jesus invites us to lay down our life in love, humility, and forgiveness. The cross is our salvation. But what does the cross save us from? I want to present to you three things today that the cross saves us from, and I'm going to use scripture to back it up. The cross saves us from Satan, death, and sin. Let's talk about it. The cross saves us from Satan. Jesus says this in, or, or, sorry, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And then Jesus said this in John 12, 31. Listen here. Jesus said, the time for judging this world has come where Satan, the ruler of this world, will be driven out. The cross, in one way that you could look at it, is the moment where Jesus looks at the kingdom of darkness and declares our independence. It is the moment where Jesus looks at a world that is controlled by the powers of Satan and drives it out, drives it out in the moment of his crucifixion. Why? Because just as Cain was influenced, you could say possessed by Satan to kill his brother Abel, for those of you who may not know, that's the first murder in the Bible. The first murder in the Bible, Cain kills Abel. In that moment, Cain was possessed by Satan to kill his brother. In the same way, the crowds, the power at B, the Roman officials, the Judean officers were controlled by Satan, driven by Satan to kill the Son of God. Jesus takes it, though. Jesus takes it. And as we will learn here in a little bit, it is the moment where Jesus bears the sin, shame, and guilt of the world. And so when Satan thinks that he's winning, he's actually losing. He's actually losing because the power of Satan will never overcome the will of God. I'm going to say that again because that's a place for you to amen. The power of Satan will never overcome the will of God in your life, and especially on Good Friday, it did not. You, I mean, you've got to imagine what what, uh, you know, how, how the satanic forces were thinking, you know, oh, we've got him. We've got, you know, the Son of God. We've got him right where we want him. And all Satan knows how to do is steal, kill, and destroy. That's what John 10, 10 tells us. Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life more 
abundantly. But right before that, he says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all Satan knows how to do. And so the Satan, he, he, is, he is possessing the crowd, getting the people all riled up to go and hang Jesus on a tree. And that's what Satan has been doing forever. And that's what he will do in your life if you don't let him, or if, if, if you let him tempt you, speak into your life. Look what it says right there. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us who, 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 who once were in sin, and maybe those of us who are still in sin, when we choose to disobey God, we have, some, we have some responsibility for that. We have some accountability for that. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But the one who is tempting us, the tempter, the one who's been the liar from the beginning, the one that tries to get us to sin is Satan, is the one that is in rebellion against God. The one that is trying to get us to rebel against God. But on the cross, Jesus drives Satan out because the hatred and the murder and the strife could not hold the Son of God down, could not hold him down. On that cross, yes, the satanic force was working against him, but Jesus overcame on the third day. Amen. Amen. The second thing Jesus saves us from is death, and this is one of my favorite ones. Read, listen to what Revelation 1.18 says. I am the living one. I died but look, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Listen to what 2 Timothy 1.10 says. And now he has made all of this plain to us by appearing, uh, the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the gospel. What Jesus does in dying on the cross is that he enters into death to destroy death by death by coming out on the other side. How many of you in here have seen Men in Black? I've used this illustration before, and so some of you here might, not, might know where I'm going with this. In Men in Black, the movie, Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith, you know, they're, they're fighting the monster, and, and this, particular, this one particular monster is giving him a rough time, right? Well, Tommy Lee Jones has a brilliant idea. He lets the monster eat him. <laughs> and for the moment, when you're the first time watching it, you're like, what is going on? You know, what? But then all of a sudden, bam, the monster is destroyed from the inside out. Brilliant tactic, brilliant strategy if you think about it. And that, that is a silly metaphor, but it is very, very much like what Jesus did with death. When God wanted to destroy death, he did not snap his finger, but he became a human and entered right into it. He entered right into that which has plagued humans from the beginning of our history, right? They say the only things that are certain in life are death and taxes. All of us will go to the grave. And so Jesus went to the grave for you and I, but he came out on the other side. Jesus destroyed death by death, giving us eternal life. The death of Jesus is the dawn of a new era because up until that point, yes, Jesus had raised other people from the dead. There had been other people raised from the dead, yes. But no one had raised himself from the dead of their own accord. No one had the power to do it to themselves. No one had the power to speak life when they were in the grave. Yet Jesus did 
Because how do you kill God and get away with it? How do you kill the one who was and is and is to come and get away with it? Newsflash, you don't. You don't. Jesus goes into the grave and that's the folly of Satan. That's, that's the folly of those at B. They think that they've won. They think they have the victory. They think that once they have put the Son of God in the ground that the rest of it will all blow over. But hallelujah, three days later, the resurrection of the Son of God. And that is the death of death once and for all. And so church, I, 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 want, I want you to get this. Because Jesus Christ has destroyed death, death no longer has a hold over your life. The Apostle Paul, we're talking about the Apostle's teaching, right? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When people die, we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but we know that resurrection power, resurrection life is within the Son of God. And because He is resurrected from the dead, that same Spirit has been transferred into us, into those who believe on His name. That power goes into us. And now death no longer holds us. Hallelujah. You know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I hear people that are afraid to, they're afraid to talk to certain people. They're afraid to, they're afraid to reach out to certain people. Oh, man, I don't want to talk to those. You know, they might hurt me, you know. Or they're, they're afraid of, of what's happening on the world political stage because, oh, man, the world might. Listen, I'm never going to die. I'm never going to die and neither are you. Because when we put our hope and our trust in the Son of God, when we walk through that door that we call death, we walk through that door, that's all it is. It's a door and standing on the other side is Jesus. And he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. For us, death is just a doorway. Death is just a doorway because of what Jesus has done. On the cross, offering up his own life as a sacrifice, destroying death, entering into it, plundering, plundering Hades. Jesus has the keys of death in the grave. And what do you think he's going to do with those keys? He's going to stroll up to that door. He's going to open up that door right for us and say, come on in, come on in. Here we are, right? Jesus saves us from death. And lastly, this is the, maybe the most important one, maybe the most well-known one, but I really want to dive deep into this one today. Jesus saves us from sin. Jesus saves us from sin. Jesus saves us not just from personal sin, but from the power of sin. Jesus saves us from all sin, the power of sin that's over our life, right? I talked about how the devil, he will tempt you to sin. He will tempt you to disobey God. What Jesus does is breaks that power over your life. So the gospel, one way you could say is this, is that you might be tempted to sin, but the good news is that you don't have to. The good news of Jesus Christ is that you don't have to sin, that Jesus has broken the power of sin. Jesus bears the sin of the world. Let's talk about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Chris, I, th- I do think that one's on there. Let's, let's, yep. So this is a very, very famous passage from Isaiah. And for those of you that don't know, this was not written during the life of Jesus or anywhere remotely close. This was written hundreds of years before. This is a prophetic a prophetic scripture about the coming Messiah, Jesus. Listen to what it says very, very clearly. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. 
Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for all to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. Amen. As I said, this is a scripture written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. You can't make this stuff up, folks. You can't make this stuff up. Prophetic scripture. A prophetic word about the coming Messiah. That when Jesus came on that tree, in my place, in your place, he would be condemned. In our place, that, that Jesus would bear the sin of the world, not just your sin, not just my sin, but all sin, all sin, all disobedience, all shame, all guilt, all acts of disobedience to God, every, every rape, every murder, every, every war, every, uh, every act of, of innocent execution, every single bit of sin, shame, fighting, quarreling, unforgiveness, bittering, broken families, broken relationships, addictions. Do I need to go on? Every single sin. Because humanity has done a very, very awful job of following God. And what does the Bible have to say about that? 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 21. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So I'm not going to stand up here and act like I know everything, but I do know a couple things. And let me tell you this. When God looked at the sin of humanity, whenever God looked at all of our rebellion and all of our stubbornness and all of our wicked ways and all of our hatred and all of the murder and all of the killing and all of the racism and all of the everything that happened, when God looked at it all, he was not absent from it. But when God looked at our sin and he looked at our chain, I love this phrase that Bradley used a couple months ago, and I've been thinking about this ever since. God made a deal with God to come and bear sins that he never did. God made a deal with God to come and be the innocent sacrifice for things that he had never done, 
to be, un, to be unjustly condemned, to be wrongfully convicted for things that he had never done. God is the only one who is perfect. That's why we call him holy. Holy means to be set apart. God is other. God is perfect. God is perfect in every single way, shape, or form. Yet he came and he died a death that he did not deserve. In your place, in my place, in the place of all of those who will call upon his name. Our sin. Bradley talked about sin last week beautifully. And if you're in this place and you think you haven't sinned, well, there's your sin. You're a liar. Because we all have sinned. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have turned our own way like sheep. That's what, that's what Isaiah 53 says. Like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've all walked away from the Lord in some capacity. And so what do we do about sin? What do we do about these things that have, that have, that have happened? When, when God looks at your list, right? right it's, it's, are you on the naughty or the nice list? No. When God looks at the, sin, the sin of your life, the list of your sins, what does God do with it? Oh, well, somebody's got to pay. Somebody. There is, this, there is this way of interpreting the cross that will put... Father God, like kind of up here somewhere, okay? And then Jesus on the cross, and Father God is real, real mad, real mad, so mad at humanity, and he's got to beat up someone. He's got to kill someone so that he can forgive you. He's, he's got to kill his own son so that he can forgive you. If you ask me, that's rubbish. The Bible says that God was in Christ. And so where was God on Good Friday? God on Good Friday was not like the ancient deity Molech demanding child sacrifice. God was not like Zeus ready to strike down the thunderbolt. God was in Christ. The tears of Jesus were the tears of heaven. As the sin of the world. What the Roman officials did not realize as they were whipping the Son of God was that the whips they were putting on him were not just theirs. But it's, it's this climactic moment where when we kill God, all sin is born on him. He bears all the sin of the world. And what's he do with it? He forgives it. Because that is true forgiveness, folks. True forgiveness is not you having to get back at something or having to have revenge or having to pay something before you can move on. Forgiveness is simply moving on by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart. And on Good Friday, as Jesus is bearing the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, God in Christ forgives it. Listen to what the scripture says. This is powerful. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. There's a very powerful scripture in Luke chapter 23. And when I was a young boy growing up in the faith, I didn't know much about God. But I knew that when I read these words, they were the most powerful words I had ever read. And it, as a, as a nine-year-old boy, I got my first phone. And my background was Luke 23, 34. It just said Luke 23, 34 to always remind me 
of these words. Listen to what Jesus says as he hung on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On the worst day of Jesus' life, as he is hanging condemned in your place, in my place, he utters the final verdict, the final judgment, the final word of God over humanity. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And isn't that the truth? We are tempted by Satan. We are feeble. Oftentimes we have no idea what we're doing when we go through life. We're walking around sinful, yes. We need to be responsible for our actions, yes. But half the time we have no idea what we're doing. Jesus saw that. He saw these Roman officers, they have no idea what they're doing. They're part of a cruel system. They're part of a barbaric system where instead of, instead of putting people in jail or instead of trying to you know, correct bad behavior, you just hang people. You just kill them. Barbaric, cruel. They don't know what they're doing, God. What do you think God said when Jesus asked him to forgive? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, okay. I will, son, but I gotta wait till you die first. You gotta wait till it's finished, you know? We think that's what it is finished means. We think that it, it is finished, then Jesus has crossed the goal line, then man, punch the ticket, then God can forgive us, right? No. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, God said, of course, son. Because if you will remember, those of you that have read the book of John, Jesus says, I never say anything my father is not thinking. I only speak what I hear my father saying. The father and the son are one. And what some people will teach and I just, want to, I just want to warn you, because I feel like as a pastor, this is important stuff. And some of you today, might not, this may not be like the, you know, woo, let's go type sermon. But you need to be aware of this. Import, correct doctrine is important. People will try to tell you that on, the, on, on Good Friday that the Father and the Son split. That, that the Father and the Son were not in unison. That is a heresy, a formal heresy. Because ever since the beginning of Christianity, it has been taught that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one and the same, of one mind, of one accord, of one love. To split them apart would mean that God was no longer God, that God was only two out of three instead of three out of three. God was in Christ. And God made a deal with God in his providence, in his great wisdom, in his great love to come and to be wrongfully convicted for things that he had never done to bear your sin, to bear my sin. Jesus comes, and this is our salvation. Jesus bears our sin, recycles it into forgiveness. So the cross is our salvation. The cross is our salvation. But it's also an invitation into imitation. Be ready, my album's coming out next May, you know. I, I, you know just kidding. The cross is an invitation into imitation. Jesus, gruesome death. And let me tell you something this too. Jesus was not the only one that was ever crucified. You need to know that. Crucifixion was a common practice in ancient Roman law. Someone was convicted, oh, go hang him on a tree, right? 
obviously we know that from the other two that were hanging with him, right? The, 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 rob, the, the thieves that were convicted with Jesus. It was a common practice. And this common practice of brutally torturing, executing, and killing people was done before Jesus died. So listen to these words of Jesus in a new light. You have heard these words, no doubt. But in the light of everything I've just preached, listen to these words now. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after me. What does this mean? Does this mean that to follow Jesus, we are to go break a bunch of laws and hopefully be executed? No, of course not. What it means is this. Just as Jesus went to the cross with humility and obedience and love and forgiveness, we must walk in that same manner as his disciples. We must walk in the way of Jesus. We must, at any point, as Christians, we do not kill for our faith, but we must be willing to die for it. We must be willing to walk in the way that Jesus walked as he went to the cross. Listen, I read the word from Isaiah earlier. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before shears, humble, did not speak a word out of his mouth, walked in humility and grace and love and forgiveness. And now it is your job and it is my job as followers of the risen Christ to imitate Jesus, to imitate the one who died on the cross and how he died on the cross. Jesus shows us on the cross that the character of God is one of of radical forgiveness, of of co-suffering love, of of this crazy, crazy kind of love that you and I are are now supposed to be emboldened to go live out in the world with. Crazy humility, crazy love, crazy forgiveness. People shouldn't know you are a Christian by the kind of Bible verses you can just fling at them, or the, the kind of, you know, maybe you walk around your office singing Christian songs. Those are all good things, yes. But Jesus says in John 13, 34, that they will know you're my disciples by this, your love one for another. When Jesus says to take up your cross and follow him, that means quit walking in your selfish, stupid, sinful ways and to walk as he did. Quit walking in the stubborn way of the world and walk in the way of Jesus. Did you know that we weren't always called Christians? Before the believers met in Antioch, we were called followers of the way. Followers of the way. So first and foremost, originally, Christians were known as the followers of a way, a way of life, a way of being, a way of living in the world. These people who had turned the world upside down, we read in Acts chapter 7, right? These men have turned the world upside down. Well, how did they do it? Well, they held all sorts of tent revivals and all sorts of, all sorts of you know, they were holding these Bible studies and all this kind of stuff. I, I shouldn't be facetious. Those things are good, yes. But how they turned the world upside down is they walked in this radical way of living. Radically forgiving. Radically loving. R- radically co-suffering. Willing to die at any moment for their faith. That's the kind of faith I want us to have here at the River Church. The cross is salvation, yes, but the cross is also an invitation to imitation. Imitate, live as Jesus did, 
every single day. We are invited to live as Jesus did. And I will say this. There is only one way. There's only one way. There's only one way, one truth, one life, and his name is Jesus. And when we read that scripture, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except for through me. We will read that in a way that when we think of the way, the way, you know, the way... Jesus is the way. Well, that means that if I just mentally in my mind think and pray the right kinds of prayers and think the kind of right doctrinal statements, if I ascribe myself to a certain belief system, then bam, punch my ticket to glory. When a mansion on the hillside, that's it. The way is, is that Jesus is going to... Jesus is a way of living. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it means there is no other way to live. Any other way to live, any other teacher, any other kind of system that's teaching you to live in a certain way is not the way at all. Jesus is the way. The way of love, the way of forgiveness is the only way to live. And if you're a Christian in this house, the Holy Spirit within you right now should be confirming that. The only way to live is the life that Jesus lived. That's how we were created to live. Now, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Oh, sorry. Lawyer. What are you going to do about it? You're invited to take up your cross. You're invited to live a life so radically forgiving, so radically loving, so radically humble, so radically graceful. But Walker, what if people take advantage of me? They certainly took advantage of Jesus, didn't they? Well, Walker, what if people say mean things to me? They certainly cursed out Jesus as he was going to the cross. What if people hurt me? They whipped him with a cat of nine tails, put a crown of thorns on his head, ripped the flesh off of his bones. We are called to walk in this way, no matter what it costs us, to walk in the way of forgiveness and the way of love. Well, Walker, you, you just don't know how the world works. Walker, you're just a 21-year-old naive boy. You don't know anything. You don't know how the real world works. In the real world, in the world of big men and women, in the world of, of, of high officials and governors, the way that we do things is, is, yeah, that stuff of Jesus, you know, Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your enemies, that kind of stuff, that, that's good. You know, maybe we can do that in private life. Maybe we can just say that for certain times. But to really get things done, we've got to rule with an iron fist. We've got, we've, got to, we've got to get our power in there and really make things happen. No. Either the way that te Jesus teaches us to live is the way or it is not. There is no in-between. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that the way that Jesus called us to live is the way that we are to live, no matter what anybody in Washington or Korea or anywhere says we should live. This is the way to live. This is the way to life. We are to live in this way, the way of Jesus. And if you don't know the way of Jesus, pick up your Bible and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it will change your life forever. Because the way Jesus lived, there is no other way. Some people think it's impractical. Some people think it's, it's, it's not, not for anything. Oh, this makes me so mad. I'm ranting now. I need to close this. But listen, back in the day, there was a Schofield Study Bible, and some of you might remember that. I wasn't around to read it, but I have, I have seen excerpts from it. And in the Schofield Study Bible, it says this, under the Sermon on the Mount, in the notes, that the Sermon on the Mount, 
the teachings of Jesus are not meant to be practically implied in life here and now, but they're only for glory. They're only for when Jesus comes back. Absolutely terrible theology. If you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do pray for those who hurt you. If someone smacks you on the right cheek, give them the left. If someone steals your coat, give them your shirt also. If someone demands you to carry their luggage one mile, carry it two miles. Crazy stuff, right? It sounds very, very nice and enticing to follow in the way of Jesus when the band's up here rocking, sounding good. But the way of Jesus is hard. The way of Jesus is tough. The way of Jesus is not always easy. The way of Jesus just might get you killed in a lot of countries in the world. But there is no other way. There is no other way to life and fulfillment and to happiness. There is no other way to live. No other way to be in the world. The way of Jesus is the way. So yes, you have been called to be saved. But you're also called to imitate. To embody the life of Jesus in the here and now. Because what does the Bible teach? Christ is no longer with us. Christ is in glory at the right hand of the Father. Yes, but we are his hands and his feet. And so if Jesus is going to accomplish anything in this world, it's between you and I. Doing what we were called to do. Doing his work. Doing his will. Here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.